Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So Will, what's going on tonight? No, recording a podcast tonight, my brother Matt, currently testing the limits of how much ibuprofen the human body can tolerate? Ass still broken, oh. um, but it's okay. It's okay. Mileage is is trending upward. We're doing all right. We're going to be talking movies tonight, at least secondarily. Let me ask you this: What is a movie that you absolutely hated? Something that you thought was terrible. There are definitely movies that I have hated. I am generally a person who tries to find something redeeming in everything I see. But friend of WMQ, Rob Lynch. Have you met Rob? I can't remember if you've done a WMQ where Rob was on as well. I don't think you... Look, I, I ain't been on WMQ in like 17 months. So who knows? Well, Rob, you, you got you guys are getting too highfalutin over there. You're like talking to you know actual people. Oh, for the the days when it was just us goofing around, that those were fun and much more research light episodes. Um, those were the days. <laughs> well, friend of WMQ, Rob Lynch, who will someday appear on Bat Chat, uh, has has a, a maxim that. Bad movies aren't the worst movies. Boring movies are the worst movies. Bingo. That is exactly it. All right. So I do the the AMC A-list thing where you pay $25 a month and you can see up to three movies a week for $25 a month. Not bad. Not at all. And it includes IMAX and Dolby. That is not bad at all. Are, Are you restricted by times? Nope. Hey, so that ain't bad. No. So for me, what I do pretty much every week is I go and see whatever is playing on that biggest format screen. Plus something else often, unless the movie playing on that biggest format screen is something I absolutely do not care about. That second part was added after right after the pandemic, I started going to everything on that big screen, regardless of if I cared or not. Because Uh right out of the pandemic, I had more time. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to go whatever it is, because that way you've made your your $25, you've made your bones after two two of those on a matinee, and everything else you see that month is gravy. So for a while there, it was going pretty well. And then... There was a movie that was a sequel to a movie I did not particularly love, nor the original did I. The original was a movie called The Hitman's Bodyguard with Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. Did not particularly care for it, did not particularly not care for it. It was it was there. But then they did a sequel called The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. This is literally the only movie I have walked out. (laughs) It was just 
boring and dumb. And all of these characters who were fairly broadly painted in the first movie were now those stereotypes were ratcheted up to like 13. And the whole thing revolves around the austerity measures that Greece was taking. Odd call there. Yeah, and a, a Greek magnate who wanted to bring down the international order because of what it had forced upon Greece. Said Greek magnate, played by noted Greek Antonio Banderas. So Greek. Yeah. And at about the halfway point, the titular hitman, played by Samuel L. Jackson, the titular bodyguard, played by Ryan Reynolds, and the titular wife, played by Salma Hayek, are on the run and have to find somewhere to hide out. So they wind up going to Ryan Reynolds's father's place. Said father played by... Sorry, I, I was about to say something. I was like, I must be misremembering this because it couldn't have been as dumb as I'm remembering. But it was. Oh, no. Said, said father played by Morgan Freeman. So there's this whole awkward thing with Samuel L. Jackson not trying to say that, oh, your father's black when that's what they're going for. And of course, he's his stepfather. The thing that finally got me, okay, I'm done, is there's this flashback about how Ryan Reynolds' mother died and why he can't eat gelato. Because they were going, they were at a carnival or something and his mother bought him gelato and there was one of those like, whirly things with the individual little like gondolas on it nearby and a drastically overweight man was on there and he weighed so much that it broke off the thing and crushed the mother while he was eating the gelato and i'm like okay that was stupid and fat shamey and i'm done i'm done i'm out and after that it was like no now i'm I am going to be a little more conscientious of what I see and that I'm not going to see everything on these big screens because I can still make up the money by going to see movies I actively enjoy. In all fairness, I saw movies that way that I wouldn't have seen otherwise that turned out to be pretty good, but I'd rather go and see something that I'm, you know, not have to squeeze in the other movie at a later date just to make the most money it's not there's no sunk cost fallacy here that's what i was doing i was buying into a sunk cost fallacy of making the most of the money when i was not making the most of my time which is more valuable than the your time is valuable which is why i always like to remind people look yes you could spend two days to fix that thing in your house or to fix that thing in your car or you could just pay somebody who knows what they're doing to do it. You know, you, you talk about seeing movies coming out of the pandemic, and man, what a fucking ghostly end that was. Like, yeah, the world stopped there for a time, and Hollywood stopped. The, the very first movie, and this is not my most hated film, uh, the very first movie I saw out of the pandemic was Spiral, which was Chris Rock's oh, take on yeah, a Saw movie, saw. also with Samuel L. Jackson. Also not very good, but 
putting aside Star Trek Into Darkness, which is in its entire separate category of bad movies, what I would pick here is La La Land. Hmm. Because it is one of the few movies that I have turned off. I got nothing against uh, musicals. I am fighting right now uh, to not start singing tunes from Chicago. Fucking love Chicago. Oh, yeah. Uh, cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, shut up in my name, Mr. Cellophane. Okay, I'll stop. Uh, singing in the Rain. I, I consider Blues Brothers to be a musical. Like, just great films. Uh, La La Land is not one of them. Like, I, I don't know how far I made it into the movie. I made it at least into the first musical number. It was bad. Like, it was so bad. Uh, and then just turned it off, walked away. All right, we're done. You know what? I have another. Actually, now that I think about it, that was more appropriate for tonight. Oh. Joker. The Todd Phillips Joker. I did not like that movie. It was nihilistic. It was so trying to be Scorsese of the 80s with this taxi driver vibe. And you know what? If I want to tax if I want to watch tax taxi driver, you know what I'm gonna do? Just watch taxi driver. Yeah. For every good point that it makes about the way mental health issues are treated or not treated in the society, which is a huge problem. Do not get me wrong. That is a huge problem. The fact that you are by the end still supposed to absolutely sympathize with someone who is an unrepentant murderer? No. Okay, the guys he first kills on the subway who are going to attack him yes but then you see that he's basically stalking zazie beats which is a problem and then yes robert de niro's king of comedy-esque talk show host is a jackass but just shooting him in cold blood because he's disturbed yeah no you're you're you can't sympathize with someone who is killing people in cold blood like that and i mean the whole thing with the waynes is just i don't like i just no i did not like that movie i did not like that movie that last scene stretches on past the point of believability when de niro's character and i will say i'm very proud for de niro taking at least one role that's not embarrassing at this stage in his career oh my god yes the number of times I saw the trailer, because again, go to the movies every, every week with my, my A-list. The number of times I saw a trailer for that friggin' About My Father movie that just opened every goddamn movie for the past two and a half months. Uh, I, I know, it's it's tough. But I'll, again, I give him applause for not like just sliding, at least for one role, trying to do something serious. But that scene where, again, he... He finds out, oh, so you're a murderer. Um, all right, let's let's get the police here. Um, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna cut the show. I'll see you later. But it stretches on for like another 20 minutes, it seems like. I saw Joker as it was intended to be seen, uh, on cable television with lots of commercial breaks. Uh, so I I did not hate it. 
as a lot of people did, but I also like, I didn't think it was all that good. I'll say this, Joaquin Phoenix just like devotes himself. Good for him. Tyrell wasn't great, but he absolutely threw himself in character. It also, for me, suffered in the fact that the week before I saw it, I saw Parasite, which is a similarly scathing commentary on society, but about eight billion times better. Oh, my God. Like, in different realms of filmmaking. Yeah, it, it was unfair to Joker to be seen within a week of Parasite, which does everything it wants to do and does it so much better. Yeah, and if, if you disagree, bring it. That's that's all I got to say. I will you will not change my mind on how I felt about that movie. Matt's going to fuck you up if you do try to bring it. Was I believe the headline on the editorial that definitely friend of the show Dan Grote wrote was Joker is the movie that hates you back. <laughs> Or something to that effect, and it is true. Uh, I will say that uh, I was particularly proud of a thing I wrote uh, in the run up to Joker. People like sort of complaining about all of the Incelli vibes. It's like, oh, this movie's going to inspire people to violence. No, let's, let's tune it down a bit, take a deep breath. It's just a movie, it's going to go away, and everything will be fine. And lo and behold, everything was fine. I remember that piece. It was a good one. It was a very good one. But speaking of movies, tonight... Let's go out to the movies. Let's go out to the movies. Let's go out to the movies and buy some stuff at the snack stand. This week, we're reading three stories that directly tie into Batman stories in other mediums. Our first story of the night is Batman 89 shadows this is batman 89 numbers one to six the writer is sam ham with art by joe quinones colors by leonardo ito letters by clayton cowles and edited by andrew marino andy corey and katie kubert the cover dates are october of 2021 to september of 2022 harvey dent's political ambitions the racial tensions in gotham Batman's tenuous relationship with the police and a new ally crash together in this continuation of the Batman movie franchise set after Batman Returns that establishes a very different Two-Face. This, for me, was a much better reading experience reading it all in one-ish sitting versus six issues over 11 months. Yeah, kind of delayed there. Reading this made me think that oh, we should uh, we should get the movie uh, adaptation on uh, on some um, some future episode. But I think a lot of our kind of initial reactions still hold. This is still some weird ass art choices here. It is a book with good art that does not suit the book or a good artist doing art that does not suit the book i like joe quinones a lot but he makes choices that don't feel like they work with this particular story no none of the ominous sort of gothic vibes 
of Gotham are are in this book. Like this just looks like Gotham is any other city. It's any other depiction of Gotham. Like I feel like Quinones has just did not see 89. Like he didn't watch it. He has no sense of what the vibes are supposed to be. And he just did what he thought, you know, the, the script called for, which is fine. But as we have, we said in our reviews, this is a good story. Uh, you know, you just can't visualize it in that same world. And Ito's colors are vivid, which is not the look for a lot of this. That vivid look is more Shoemaker than Burton. Right. And um, it, it's not to say that all of Burton's Batman scenes are muted. There are bright moments, but this is brighter in general or throughout rather than the brightness working against the much darker rest of the story. And some of Batman in action is kind of off-putting. Like he comes off as this kind of sinewy, gangly figure. Like there's not a physical presence to this Batman. He's just like, if he feels weird and tiny in spots. And if you've got a character who should be skinny and sinewy, Michael Keaton wore the rubber suit so he would be a bigger presence. In all fairness, there is also not a ton of Batman in this. This, as with Batman Returns, is very much more about the villain than it is about Batman. Oh, absolutely. The story revolves around Dent, and we'll certainly get to that. Dent is worth the price of admission on this story. Like the the layers, the complications the completely different approach. But then some characters are just barely even there. Like poor Barbara, right? This is the the most shallow, nothing appearance of Barbara Gordon, I think, and maybe anything we've read. He is just there to serve as Harvey Dent's girlfriend. Even the death of Jim, you don't see it affect her. Because he dies at the end of issue five. And issue six feels like it's three issues of story jammed into one issue. So much happens in that last issue. And all of it feels like it could have been teased out further. And there are plot threads in this book that are dropped that reading it, again, all in one sitting was like, wait, there's this whole thing in the first two issues about the National Guard coming into Gotham. And then they're just kind of gone. They never address why the National Guard left. It's just like, okay, they're not here anymore. Which very much has that feeling of Batman Returns, which has 8 million plots, many of which don't get tied up anywhere. Max Shrek's power plant is just there to set up why he needs to kill Selina. The National Guard is there so they can open fire on Batman and kill a civilian, which is something that the GCPD could have just as easily done. And if you had removed the the pages that were needed to set up the National Guard, you would have had more time to tease out the big reveal as to why the whole thing with the 
armored cars is more than just some guys stealing some armored cars. Ah, because of the papers that were in the cars. Right, which I felt like reading issue six when we first did it, that it came kind of out of left field. It makes more sense now having read it all in one sitting. But again, it it's a MacGuffin. It's just sort of there. And it's a MacGuffin that's introduced at the end of the third act. Yeah, that's not how MacGuffins are supposed to work. Right. We Something should have been set up. I mean, there's various weird bits and pieces hinted about this savings and loan, what's going on. But it's so backburnered compared to everything else that it doesn't serve the big reveal or doesn't make the big reveal feel that big in the end. Oh, but Selena was on it the whole time. Great. (laughs) Then we should have spent more time with Selena doing that. And the, the other thing when it comes to the art is that there's a strange mix of very on model based on the actor's character designs when it comes to especially Billy D. Williams' Two-Face and Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman and Michael Keaton's Bruce Wayne and Batman don't look anywhere near as photorealistic as the Billy D. Williams, Harvey Denton, Two-Face. And Alfred. And Alfred. And Jim Gordon looks similar, looks very close except for the fact that it looks like he weighs about three times as much as pat hingle ever did he's drawn as very large which again not there are different body types and that's fine a a heavier jim gordon whatever but it, it throws off the accuracy to the actor yeah it seems like they just didn't have the rights to keaton for whatever reason like that's the uh, one of the only things that could explain this it looks so much not michael keaton i i like kind of advancing the timeline by giving him the gray that is an interesting touch but otherwise it's very strange but harvey dent looks spot on billy d williams the dialogue in many places that I can always hear in Keaton's voice. There's one particular moment when Bruce is bringing Drake, the young Robin sort of to be down to the Batcave for the first time. And Drake asks if he ever wanted to be normal. And he just replies, yeah, sometimes it passes. And I could absolutely hear that in Michael Keaton's dry Bruce Wayne delivery. It's a great spot on line in the same way that you can hear certain jokers when written just in a certain way. It's like, oh yeah, that's a Mark Hamill line. And we'll certainly get to this in one of the other stories tonight, but there was some good faithfulness to the original media or the tie-in media. I think we have some very good writing in spots, the dialogue, the overall arc for Harvey. I don't know if this is good comic book making. This absolutely feels like a screenplay that was done as a comic versus it being considered a comic. That's part of the hyper compression of the last issue versus the decompression of the early issues 
that is something that a director could pace out in a certain way. A good director can make those talky scenes at the beginning move faster and the action pieces at the end feel longer to balance out the movie. But on a comic book page, there's only so much you can do with these long dialogue scenes that require lots of panels. And especially as you bring so many people and ideas into Harvey's orbit and you commit yourself to telling these stories, the pacing does get weird. Yeah, it reads better in one sitting, but it makes the weirdness of the pacing even clearer. Yeah. I, I guess since we've, I feel like I've talked around it, I'll I'll say what I liked so much about the Dick character and what I still like so much. It is a radically different interpretation on Harvey Dent because it centralizes his blackness. And I think that's a brave choice. It's an interesting choice. And I think what it largely works out because it paints him as being in two worlds, you know, being in the Burnside, the black, you know, neighborhood and growing up there and growing up poor. So we have that dichotomy. And then we also have a dent who's preoccupied with alternate dimensions and alternate outcomes. So we see him imagining like different paths his life could have taken, like one time, you know, his friends held up a liquor store. Like, what if he was with them? You know, what if, I forget what the other sort of positive outcomes that there were, but it was just this fascinating idea that played out. And we don't always see that with Harvey. We see like the obsession with the coin and we had that here, but there's very few times where it's like a next level, more interesting than just the coin flips. Yes, it's funny having reread this now in a time where so much of media is obsessed with multiverses that reading this after having seen everything everywhere all at once has a really similar vibe to all of the alternate paths the one life can take and Obviously, neither is derivative of the other because they would have been released in completely separate time frames. But they're looking at a similar idea and taking them in very different directions. And this is far more social commentary than we get in any Batman movie with the possible exception of the Batman. And even Mm -hmm. then, this is much more commentary on Gotham's underclass both the the criminal underclass and those who are kept down by the quote-unquote ruling class and on racial politics in general. This is not something you see in Batman movies, but here it is very front and center about how big cities do not treat neighborhoods of color as equal. There's a whole scene in issue five, I believe, four or five, where Harvey, having escaped the hospital, goes and starts hiding out in an abandoned subway station in Burnside, a subway station that was never completed because the money ran out and it wasn't worth dumping more money into a black neighborhood. 
that this was the station that was going to let people make it into the center of the city with just one trip versus multiple buses and all of this other hassle, but it wasn't worth it to Gotham's elite. And in the end, that's what the whole plot revolves around. These documents are proving that that and other projects that were meant to better the city were basically siphoned off by politicians into their own pockets and the pockets of criminals. You know, right when Dent walks into that subway station is just about the time when the story becomes much less interesting. Because at that point, he gets, you know, a Joker gang and it just becomes like regular old Two-Face, just running around and shooting people. It's certainly tragic when he shoots and kills, you know, his mentor, his friend from growing up. Like that shows you how sick Dent is. But then he also, you know, he points out before Harvey kills him, like, you were this guy all along, which I think is is something we always need to emphasize with the Dent character. Like it can be tragic, but the accident didn't make him. He was always an asshole this was scratching under the surface all along and the accident as audio adventure points out about the joker at the end of season one the accident is just the excuse it's not the the cause yeah and i love how we have a panel where dent talks about yeah my skin burns it smells This is awful. Like, and I think that's another thing that we don't get enough of Dent talking about. His condition should be miserable. It should hurt. Yes. All the time. There's a panel that absolutely calls out his code switching. Because you see it in the first couple issues. And when he calls out the GCPD for their lack of proper treatment of the Black neighborhood... Bullock confronts him and, you know, I got people on your side. There's a code for this. And he flat out says, I've been code switching my entire life. A line like that in other situations could play as two on the nose, but here it is making something clear to an audience that might not pick it up. Yeah, this is, uh, you, you mentioned Bullock in that scene. This is not really a good characterization for Bullock. It's more of, I don't know, another random GCPD dirtbag. Bullock here is absolutely a racist and a political animal looking to advance whatever he believes is the way the GCPD should be. I mean, this is a guy who basically leads a riot squad to break up a peaceful march. And by the way, there's a line at the end which strikes me as there was a rewrite somewhere that didn't quite make it. And so when Harvey Dent is confronting Mr. Otis, his mentor, Otis is refusing the the money Harvey sent him because he knows it's dirty. And Harvey's trying to explain, you know, why he did it. And he's like, And Mr. Otis, there were snipers and they were firing at a march that was there for you. The march takes place issues before the sniper. I feel like there were two scenes that were changed around and that line didn't get altered in the script because the snipers are shooting at the GCPD at Central when they've had to evacuate it because of a quote unquote gas leak that turns out to not be a gas leak. Yeah. And... We, we haven't really talked about him, but 
I absolutely love Drake Winston, the Robin kid in this book. He's a great character. He is. He's smart, competent. He comes up with a great way to figure out uh, Bruce's identity. He's polite. I love that little character beat with him. Even though he doesn't really respect Bruce, he still calls him sir and is polite. And he calls Alfred sir. And Alfred, like, you don't have to. And he's like, well, what? tell that to my grandmother. He's a really interesting character. He's a smart, he's a good kid. He's dedicated to his neighborhood. The moment when he breaks up Bullock's attempt to arrest everyone in this march, and he's standing on the roof after Gordon finally shows up and shuts Harvey down, Harvey Bullock down. That is why you don't get a lot of Two-Faced Bullock stories, because there's two Harveys in one scene, and it gets confusing. Stay out of my neighborhood. It's just a great moment. Less great is how Selena is handled here. Yeah, yes. This is strangely sort of tries to straddle a line between the more contemporary Selena stories where she is an ally and then the Batman Returns story where she is clearly an enemy, that, but there is an infatuation. She appears to just show up to cause chaos. But then she tries to do good while she's causing chaos. It's just like she appears to just commit like non sequiturs in the plot. It's very strange. She feels like a plot device. She comes into whatever scene she needs to be in to do whatever that scene needs and then goes away to come back and do something else weird and random to forward the plot later. Yeah. And now... I am the last person to say that cats are not capricious because believe me, cats are capricious, but this seems just like, okay, I need something to get me from point B to point C before I can get to point D, which I already have C to D planned out. How do I get from B to C? Ah, Catwoman comes in and does something wacky. Aha. Yes. And The sexuality of the character in Batman Returns, a lot of that works because Michelle Pfeiffer delivers those lines and embodies that character. On paper, without that performance, kind of awkward and cringy. Also, as we often see with the Batman of the Burton films especially, Batman doesn't really care too much about collateral damage. No, and they do try to point that out a couple of times here until he finally does the beginning of issue two establishes oh i screwed up but in issue one when he's breaking up this armored car robbery oh the way he did it one of the guards in the armored car just died like he says one of them's dead and one of them suffered a skull fracture and was in critical condition and he doesn't really blink at that but you know killing a young having a young father caught in the crossfire leaving an orphan oh that gets him As we all know, orphans, that'll always get Batman. This is a really complicated book to try to put on the list, right? Because there are things in here that are truly great. And then there are things that are just odd choices and just story beats that are weird. And as you said, things that are brought up and forgotten. This is a tough one. I also think, by the way, it's funny when we see one of these alternate realities the the first one we really see as harvey is being scarred 
And he is coming up with this great life for himself that isn't really happening. He's getting everything he wants. And one of those things is Gordon resigning. He clearly doesn't like Jim. And we don't find out until the end exactly why. But it's still like, yeah, all these things. Oh, and your fiance's dad is out of a job. Ah, I mean, I know people have problems with in-laws, but that seems like on your list of fantasies, your your father-in-law losing his job is probably shouldn't be up that high that it's in the good version of your life flashing before your eyes before you die. Uh, remind me again why Harvey didn't like him? He, at the end of the book, quotes a poet. I had to look it up. Um, a line about how using evil for good purposes is just more evil. And so his dislike for Batman transfers over to Gordon for being willing to work with Batman. Ah, okay. But that, again, is revealed at the beginning of issue six, when Jim's already dead. The last issue is just so packed. And then that very, very rushed, Rises-esque attempt to just wrap everything up neatly and like, oh, here are these other characters and nods toward things that you're probably never going to see. I mean, and there's a lot of really interesting ideas that don't get played with. We see, oh, the Joker gang is really two gangs. It's a bunch of nihilistic weirdos who love the idea of all the chaos, and then a bunch of professional criminals who use the Joker clown stuff as a cover, as a distraction, because people freeze up when they see the clowns. And you just got to make sure you're running with enough of group two to keep group one in check. That's an interesting idea that gets three panels. Yep. So many good ideas that just don't get fleshed out. Needed a co-writer or a stronger editor here. The relationship between Jim and Barbara is one scene. It's mentioned a couple of times early on. They get one scene together. It seems odd that that's the way you would do it when that is such a central relationship in all other media to both of their characters. Barbara just doesn't get anything in this book in terms of development, right? At least in the rest of the Burton verse, we have touchstones for who these characters are supposed to be. Yeah, we don't know anything about Harvey Dent, but at least he appeared on screen. We've got something. You know, all the other characters in the book make some kind of appearance. Barbara Gordon, unless you can like surprise me with some kind of tidbit I don't know about, Barbara Gordon has nothing in Batman or Batman Returns. Nope. And you want more because if you're using Barbara Gordon, you should be using Barbara Gordon. There's so much good in this. And then there's just these weird choices. But I think that that just about does it. Oh, this is going to be a tough one. So let's get to it. It's time for Batman 89 Shadows on the Big Board. We are at. 270 stories on the big board that's 90 completed episodes matt that is we are well on our road to the 100th episode and the 300th story Uh, i did maths yes 
Number one remains the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Batman Dies at Dawn, Batman 672 to 675, the run-up to Batman R.I.P. Coming into the sexy 69 is Detective Comics 566, Batman 400, Resurrection Night. At 100, we've got Batman the Spirit. At 150 is Batman Judge Dredd, Judgment on Gotham. 200 is The Three Ghosts of Batman, Batman Volume 1, 664 to 665, some more Morrison. Down at 250 is Gotham by Gaslight. And all the way at the bottom of 270 is still White Knight. Boo! So I'd say if I could judge it on Harvey Dent alone, I would put it in the top 100. Everything else is 220s, probably. So somewhere in between. I'd be a little more generous. I would say low, very low hundreds, upper 200, not quite 220, but that's not much of a difference. Okay, here's a story that might hit on some similar territory. 163, I Am Batman Begins, the first arc of Ridley's Batman Begins, another story that deals with race and Gotham. The art here, as much as we have some problems with it, is better than the wildly inconsistent art on I Am Batman Begins. Yeah, the the art here is good. It's just strange choices for what this book, I would hope, tried to be. This book feels to me like should have had grittier art. Because, yes, Burton's stuff does have weird, bright bits to it. I mean, the Red Triangle Gang, love that Joker, things like that. But there's always an undercurrent of nastiness to it. And Kenyonis's art is too soft and pretty. Mm, bright and clean. Clean is the exact word. And this needs something that can be pretty, but also maintains some ugliness underneath it. There's nothing in here that has the ugliness of the Red Triangle Gang. Because yes, they're in vivid colors and they're clowns and they're acrobats, but they went out of their way to cast actors with unusual looks that aren't Hollywood pretty. If we were doing a different episode and we had the official adaptation to put alongside this, it would be so stark a comparison. Because if anybody knows anything about the adaptation is that it is so famous for being photorealistic. We are committed to absolutely putting, you know, that movie, that screen on these pages. Gary Ordway does a tremendous job making all of those characters look like those actors. All right. So I think this goes above I Am Batman Begins at 163. The art is better. The Two-Face stuff is better. I also think it goes above 148 when in Rome. Better art there. Tim Sale... But one in Rome is 
so very trifly. Ren and Rome isn't saying much of anything socially, but it's also barely saying anything about the characters. There's far more meat on these bones. But when and also when in Rome is also kind of weirdly paced. Let's see. Let's let's see if we can cap a ceiling. I'm gonna say 138 Injustice Year Two Volume One. I I think Injustice is more of a complete package. Injustice itself is a bit trifly. You know, it doesn't get as in depth as the dense stuff, but it is a better, I think, overall comic. The second volume especially is better paced as well. By that point, Taylor knows this is, and DC knows this is a thing. So it is pretty much one narrative without a lot of those random asides. Batman Grendel at 141. You're a Grendel guy. I am. But as much as I enjoy it, part of why I enjoy it is I understand everything that's going on. Here, even if you don't necessarily know the movies, I feel like what you need to know is on the page. Oh, yeah, you can you can pick this up not having seen, I think, 89 or Returns. Like, you won't get the weird kind of stray references to Max Shrek, which I don't know why you got to throw those in there. But aside from that, yeah, this is pretty readable. I think right above that. I think in between Batgirl Day One, which is a nice, clean, easy little one shot, and above Batman Grendel, which, while enjoyable, requires way more foreknowledge that you don't need here. The new 141. Our next story is Shadow of the Phantasm. This is Batman and Robin Adventures Annual Number One. The writer is Paul Dini with pencils by Ty Templeton. Dev Madden, Mike Parabek, and Brandon Cruz. Inks by Templeton, Terry Austin, and Rick Burchett. Colors by Lee Lawfridge. Letters by Tim Harkins. And edited by Darren Vincenzo and Scott Peterson. The cover date is November of 1996. The Phantasm returns to Gotham to warn Bruce Wayne that a contract has been taken out on him. Who is the mastermind behind the contract? And who is the real target? So in case you couldn't tell from the title, this is a direct sequel to Batman Mask of the Phantasm. This is one of very few appearances of the Phantasm outside of the original movie. And this one, actually, it feels like you probably need a little more knowledge of the movie to follow through on this. Because so much of it is directly following story beats from that movie. They at least did try to catch up a little bit. Yeah. I mean, the, the opening is a little recap of the end of the movie. It's very good. I really like this. And for those of you who don't follow us on Patreon, currently on our ranking of the Batman media that we have looked at, Mask of the Phantasm is number one. It is a near-perfect Batman story. This is not quite as good, but it's solid. That was an interesting debate we had with Mask of the Phantasm because I I had never seen it before and I truly did think it was good, but I feel like so many fans, and you included, have internalized it, have grown to love it, and I don't remember anything from it. Like it has it has passed from my brain. 
I know of the Phantasm now, but I couldn't tell you anything about that movie. And I don't know why it just left my little head. Hmm. I mean, I've <laughs> seen it. I've seen it dozens of times. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've just seen it the once. It, it It's 85, 90 minutes, real smooth, real just beautiful. It's the height of the Bruce Tim style. And it's a noir. I mean, it's a mob story. It's a love story. It has this real 30s sort of 30s, 40s crime story vibe to it. This one is a little more superhero-y because we have another super character introduced here. Their one and only appearance, as far as I know. In all of comics? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Kitsune the Assassin does not appear anywhere else. Oh, no. There are a total of two appearances. Oh. The other is another, the Batgirl Adventures one shot. But that's it. So this is a character who has two total appearances, and this is the first. A master of fighting in limousines. Yeah. Close confines combat, big time. For those of you don't know Mask of the Phantasm, we meet Bruce's first great love in that film, Andrea Beaumont, who turns out to be the Phantasm. And here, Andrea is back in Gotham to help save Bruce from killers who have been hired to kill him. But as it turns out, the whole thing is a plot to get to her. And it all follows up on threads from Mask of the Phantasm in a pretty clever way. Did you put two and two together on who the mystery villain was at the very beginning? Again, I don't remember anything from Mask of the Phantasm, so I don't know who this guy is. Okay, so the villain here who's kind of hinted at at the beginning to possibly be the Joker, because you see someone talking to these killers on the phone, he's got a big smile, is in fact city councilman Arthur Reeves, who was the anti-Batman city councilman in that movie, who it turns out is the guy who sold out Andrea's father to the mob and who the Joker came to get information out of. And when he did or didn't give it to him, you don't actually see the scene, he Joker gassed him. And Bruce has this incredibly creepy conversation where the doctors have Reeves strapped down and he can't stop laughing. And Bruce is talking to him. And you don't see just what Joker Venom can do to somebody in Batman the Animated Series very often. So the fact that the movie really digs into the Joker being a, killer like he kills people in that movie and he does horrible things to reeves is disquieting you must have been kind of lost in places huh a little bit a little bit like i remember andrew beaumont absolutely and the phantasm as a character but yeah i i didn't know who uh who our bad guy was here there are a couple of direct callbacks to Mask of the Phantasm, a particularly great moment where after Bruce and Andrea get back to the manor after she helps save his life, they're talking and they embrace and they kiss and Alfred walks in and immediately has to spin around and walk out of the room, which he does repeatedly in the movie. It is a direct reference to the scene that happens once when Bruce is a young man 
before he becomes Batman and once when Andrea comes back in the movie. It's like, oh, okay. And I mean, Dini was one of the writers on Mask of the Phantasm. So it makes sense. Uh, and, and we know all about how he worked on Mask of the Phantasm. That's part of what Dark Knight is, yes. Uh, and when did this come out again? This is 96. So this is three years after Mask of the Phantasm. And what was the recent story that brought the Phantasm back? That cat. Ew. Yes, she's all over Bat-Cat. Ew, gross. Which it might behoove you to watch Mask of the Phantasm again before we do Bat-Cat for the podcast. Because it makes more sense if you know Mask of the Phantasm. I, well, it can't make that much more sense. But I, I will resolve. The next time we have some phantasm related media, I gotta I gotta watch that like another five times. I think once or twice will do. Yeah, there I'm sure there are worse ways to spend an afternoon than to to rewatch that movie. But the thing that really stuck out to me, and I don't know why this is the case, we have different sets of pencilers and inkers. Each of the three acts has a different artist. Yeah. And I think that that's okay. It's the coloring that is strangely inconsistent to me. The first couple of pages are nice and vibrant. And then as we get deeper into the story, it seems like they are washed out and faded. And I feel as if this is just a failure to properly digitally convert and or uh, conserve the original work because just looking at some of these pages where it's so washed out I can't think that was the colorist's original intent I would have to go and dig out my original copy but I think you're right I think there is issues with the digitization of this book also this is a book that does not have its own digital version you have to get it as part of a trade which it's- is strange Yeah, all of the, maybe not all, but a lot of the animated series tie-in comics are incompletely available on Infinite and Comixology. I think this might be the only issue, one one of two that are missing from Batman and Robin Adventures. I think the entire main run is there, and just not the two annuals. While the original Batman Adventures is missing the last half dozen issues or so, and I don't know about the others of those but the brave and the bold tie-ins they're missing the second series because it was batman the brave and the bold and then all new batman the brave and the bold and one of the all new trades is up there on infinite but none of the singles and not the second trade which has the best story of any of the brave and the bolds where a weird timey-wimey thing has all of the robins appearing in one story so you've got Dick as Robin, Jason as Robin, Tim as Robin, Steph as Robin, and Carrie Kelly as Robin, all having to team up to save Batman. Oh, that's just good fun right there. Exactly. And I've wanted to do it, but it is not easily available online. Oh, not more pirate sites. Exactly. I'm hoping that it might be available on Comixology if all new Batman, the Brave and the Bold volume two was on Comixology, but it is not on Infinite. 
that 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 doesn't bode well. Usually those two things line up. Yeah. Oh. Back to the, the back to the issue at hand. This does go back to the three act structure of the original Batman adventures. So we get those clear, distinct act breaks. And it is a really good sequel to Mask of the Phantasm. It follows up a lot of the emotional beats of that story and has Bruce have to confront this person who he trusted and who he loved, who betrayed him in a way that he can't quite reckon with. Because Andrea doesn't betray him in a, you know, turn him over to the Joker way, but betrays him in the sense that she is a killer. She is someone that he can't bring himself to be with because she is unrepentant in her choices to take life. And if we know one thing about Batman, he's got the one rule. Yep. He might have preferences. He might have his own sort of personal decisions, but he's got the one rule and he expects you to follow it. You're in Gotham. You do not kill. And you don't kill when you're not in Gotham too, but especially when you're in Gotham. And she killed multiple people during Mask of the Phantasm. And now is an international assassin, which is not good which eventually ties into her one other appearance in Batman Beyond in or uh, Justice League Unlimited actually in the Batman Beyond episode of Justice League Unlimited. I mean it hits a lot of the the good Batman the animated series notes with a a, a pithy Alfred and there's a great moment with Bruce and Andrea dancing It's one of these cases where without you remembering Mask of the Phantasm, it becomes trickier to discuss this in a way that's like, well, this connects to this. And if you don't see, well, they're kind of nodding and agreeing with me without remembering what, because he's completely trusting that I know what I'm talking about. Well, you do. You always do. And I I believe you. Uh, The one thing that really I thought was interesting in the epilogue, Batman straight up lies to Gordon which I don't think you see that all that often. See, I think... That, that, see, there, there is a, certainly a textual interpretation, Like right? I never knew Andrea Beaumont, but the line is, I never knew the person behind the mask. That's a lie. Jim Gordon would call that a lie. Yes, but it's one of those, from a certain point of view, sort of things. Your father was killed by Darth Vader. It's true from a certain point of view. Oh, fuck you, Obi-Wan. Yeah, well, Come on. But that is absolutely what this is, that I never knew the person behind the mask is true from that same certain point of view. Again, the- Jim Gordon is the detective. He deals in absolutes. He's not a Sith, but yeah. he would say that is a lie. <laughs> true. If, if, you, if you know the identity of the person behind the mask, Batman, you have to tell me. And Batman lies. But it's it's there to deliver that heartbreaking line sort of thing. It's it's there for an emotional beat, not for a telling the truth to your your buddy beat. Yeah, yeah. the The screen goes to black. The music swells. The credits roll. It it is very cinematic uh, yes. as a conclusion. Absolutely. 
and then the, it goes fades back and then it comes back up to Andrea just standing looking down on him and says goodbye my love as she cries and then disappears into the smoke which is Phantasm's thing with the disappearance in the smoke I love how she offs Reeves by having him lunge at her just cloak hanging on something and plummets off the balcony because as is the rule if you're the bad guy and you're not a major bad guy and you find out Batman's identity guess you, what you dead you yeah. are dead it's just a matter of how uh also if you're a love interest and you find out Batman's identity you two are dead yeah it, it usually and you're not Selena right or you don't immediately run from Gotham like Silver St. Cloud or like, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm gone. You don't come down with convenient amnesia or you're not suddenly stricken with the mind of a seven-year-old. Oh, yeah. I think we're good. Uh, that means it's time to put Batman and Robin Adventures annual number one on the big board. Let's see where you... Oh, no. Well, because I'm going to obviously want to go higher. Mm -hmm. But I figure if you can give me a basement, I can give you a ceiling and we'll try to find somewhere in between. Okay. As something more meaningful and better made for what it is, I'd say it goes higher than the last story. So it's higher than 141. It's got more to it than say something like 126, Crisis of Infinite Scoobies. Okay, I'd put it definitely, as always, definitely above Killing Joke at 111. So, I'll let you continue to walk it up. Okay, here's a point, and we can work around this point. 92 is Super Friends, Batman Adventures Volume 1, number 25. This is the one with Superman. This has more emotion to it. The art is better there because it's Mike Powerbeck all the way through who does just one act here. It also has those gorgeous pinups in the back, but pinups don't mm. get you a ton, but they help a little. They do help a little. Yeah. But then this... we also have uh, Batman TMNT uh, Volume 1 right there at 91, and that book's kind of a nothing burger. Yeah. A very competently well done nothing burger. Okay, it does not beat 87, Where Were You the Night Batman Was Killed? That is a hard ceiling. So I think we're in this area, somewhere in between like 87 and the mid-90s. It's just the question of where exactly. I'd probably put this above the long Halloween special at 93. Yeah. Again, beautiful book, not a whole lot of substance to it. But I don't think it beats the second Legends of the Dark Knight Halloween special at 90. The Mad Hatter one that has the, the three narratives, the Bruce, Jim, young Barbara narratives, that is also has a lot of the, the emotion of, Jim and Barbara sort of feeling out their relationship as she's just come to live with him. How about we put this uh, right below that then? New 91. New 91 sounds good to me. And our final story of the night is Batman, the audio adventure special number one. The writer is Dennis McNicholas, along with uh, a few 
assists with art by various artists edited by Katie Kubert, Andrew Marino, and Ben Mears. Uh, the cover date is December of 2021. The night the bat signal first shines in the sky of Gotham, witness how criminals, heroes, and citizens alike react to the new status quo in the city. Putting the variouses in there, I'm basically treating this like we would a black and white or another in anthology, because we'd be here all night if I were reading all of the credits on this book, because it's a large number of stories, each with different artists. Nine stories in total. Yep. So this takes place literally the night before the first episode of the first season of Audio Adventure. Because that begins with Bruce becoming a deputized consultant to the GCPD. And this is the last night before that. The night where they're first trying out the bat signal. So if I have this correct, if you wanted to do this chronologically, Audio Adventures Special, Audio Adventures Season 1, Audio Adventures Miniseries, Audio Adventures Season 2, Part 1. Yes. That is the current order. And it feels to me like writer Dennis McNicholas has plotted out all sorts of little bits that he is putting in each of these things to come back to and to play with later and is really seeding them. But in a way that if he never got the chance to do other stories, it wouldn't feel unsatisfying. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's mostly worked on SNL and then he's got a couple of movies, but uh, he these are pretty good comics. Yeah, and there's stuff set up here that pays off in the miniseries and has little nods to stuff that happens in season two of the podcast. My assumption is he probably wrote season one first, then wrote this and used this to set up some of those other little beats for later. Because in the King Scimitar story here, we see how King Scimitar got the sword that becomes a major MacGuffin in the miniseries. And we also got a reference to uh, pierogies. Yep, that was the one for season two, Mama Dagmar's pierogies. Mama Dagmar, who appears in the miniseries and then pointedly does not appear in season two, episode one. Oh, she appears all right. (laughs) Yes, in a particularly disquieting way. So we have the interstitials throughout, which are Jack Ryder. Which read perfectly in uh, Seth Meyers' voice. Absolutely. Then just for a quick rundown, The first of the individual chapters is Batman himself. Then we have the King Scimitar short. We have Catwoman. We have the Penguin, the Riddler, Robin, Two-Face, and then Joker at the very end in a, a short epilogue. Each one has a different artist, and three of them are co-written by the actors who played the 
featured characters. Bobby Moynihan co-writing The Penguin, Ike Barinholtz co-writing Two-Face, and Heidi Gardner, who voiced Miss Tuesday, the Riddler's partner, co-writing the Riddler short. So it feels like some of these actors got really involved in their character. Strange, isn't it, for an SNL guy and to bring along his SNL friends and then the one mad TV guy. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. I sat back and I was trying to figure out, I don't know which one of these was my favorite. It's hard to beat Batman because the, the narration is so crystal clear in Jeffrey Wright's voice. Yes, and it's also drawn by Anthony Marquez, who draws the miniseries. So it is visually the most consistent with all the other stuff that we've seen. I do like the art on the Robin one from Junie Ba, who has a slightly more cartoony style, more exaggerated style, because these are all working in a somewhat cartoony, almost animated series in places style. Anthony Marquez's style is notably evoking some Batman the Animated Series. It surprised me. The the bits I liked in series one, I still liked. And the bits I disliked, I still disliked. Like the King Scimitar, I'm still hearing Fred Armisen's voice. I'm like, I fucking hate this. Let's move on. Yeah, the only thing there is like, okay, cool. Hey, the art looked nice. And I love the design on the scimitar itself with the demon's head worked into the hilt. But it's kind of like, I don't care. Don't. Because he's he's a straight up goober and Armisen plays him as a goober and just distraction from all the good stuff. The only thing that I really got a chuckle out of was that Batman basically says, you're so beneath me, I almost sent Robin after you. And when King Scimitar shows up at the underworld market to get a weapon to kill Batman, one of the guys just sees him and I did. I thought I'd written down exactly what he calls him. It's and something like a Robin guy. Yeah, it was like, Robin bait? I'm going to find the the exact quote. Oh, a Robin problem. He's he's just a we got some Robin problem over here. And that that's what McNicholas has done such a good job of with this universe, this franchise. We can have serious moments. Like we can have dark, disturbing moments. And then we can have just also just have some good comedy. Like, King Scimitar as a character sucks. But that just little joke there, very good. Oh, and Paul Shear, I'm sorry, wrote the uh, co-wrote the Robin story as well. I missed that one. Who plays various secondary characters throughout. King Scimitar is, is, not, a, is not a memorable character. He is not a character that is going to find his way onto Earth Prime anytime soon. This world needs its own designation. This needs to be Earth 92 or something. Some tie-in with, like, audio listening. Yeah. They'll come up with it when they they need to. The Penguin one is the dark one here. 
you know, for a guy who who comes off as so affable and goofy in all his interviews as well as the characters he plays, apparently Bobby Moynihan has a dark side because this is the really and this is another one that has a hint because it points out that Penguin's right hand man, Mister De Condor, is former Santa Priscan cartel, which sets up something in season two. Foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Oh, if you want to hear us talk more about Audio Adventure Seasons 1 and 2, back us on Patreon. We have discussed both at this point. They're both ranked on our little board. You can find out where they lie. The Batman one absolutely is a highlight. The Penguin one is is the, the darkest. Dude kills a cat. And I guess tortures his lounge act because yeah i i've got to imagine there's some backstory there this guy is just an ass but it was clear he knew this was coming because he'd already killed the cat but yeah he just kind of like came in with this guy's daughter's cat in a box and gives him flies in ice and it it seems like it felt like he knew that he was gonna mouth off at him because he completely disrespects cobblepot in this story and you learn quickly not to do that but it, it seems like oswald was ready for it and i don't know if that is just how oswald plays in this world He's so used to the disrespect that he comes in swinging every time. But it doesn't end well for uh, Stoveplate Sullivan, who does one of the musical interludes in one of the early episodes of the podcast. This also, there's a bit in season two when the contract is out on Catwoman that one of the gangs that is trying to kill her that they're taking odds on is the Blind Mice Gang from the Batman and Catwoman stories. And some of that stuff feels like it's just things that he threw in there as a gag that he can then bring back to flush out the universe, which is equally good, in my opinion, as having a big plan. It feels often better for me to go back and mine what you already have than creating more stuff that just adds clutter to a universe when you already have something that can work. Yeah, it's uh, you're just fleshing out things that you've already sort of introduced. Reading the Riddler story made me miss Miss Tuesday more in season two because she was a lot of fun in season one. But hopefully if we're going to be getting more Riddler in the second half of season two, she'll be back. Yeah, you got to think that second half is going to be a bunch more Joker, lots more Riddler, uh, probably less Scarecrow. And we get a little bit of Scarecrow here and it's all set up from all the stuff that we see in season two with the, the biker gang, Dem Bones, who works for Scarecrow in here. And as I was saying before about Junie Ba's somewhat more exaggerated style, it works with Scarecrow because his Scarecrow is weirdly angly and creepy. That works in a Scarecrow story. And in a story with kids, he draws kids well they look like kids they don't look like shrunken adults which is often a problem you have with kids that one also ends with one of those patented mcnicholas fucked up twist moments the van scarecrow had had a bunch of animal cages that were empty 
didn't strike me as a pet guy. Yeah, those are going to be kids in those cages. Yep. Like we see in uh, in season two where he's uh, abducting kids. So yeah, you try out some scarecrow drugs and then he takes you and sees what they do to you. The, uh, the stories that we have, I mean, the Catwoman story and the Riddler story and the Two-Face story are all fine. They don't quite stand out. I like the very end of the Two-Face story. That has a nice moment where Bruce sees his chance to redeem Harvey in that he chooses to do the right thing in a moment without using the coin. Saying to Bruce that Harvey is still under there. It's a really nice moment to give Bruce that hope for Harvey, which is something we've seen play out over the course of the series. Harvey's struggles, he's not as nuanced as the Billy D. Williams Harvey Dent we saw in 89, but he is a more nuanced two-faced than we see in other stories because he is someone we really see struggling with his other yes there is more struggle and there's more of a preoccupation with the two which makes him a bit more of a comedic character um but still interesting again since we've never talked about audio adventure on the main feed here we should probably point out audio adventure exists in a really strange place that is somewhere in between 66 and the animated series. The characters can at times be 66 goofy, like Two-Face and his complete obsession with the number two and his sort of like twitchiness and this anathema reaction he has to odd numbers. But you also have some really disturbing joker moments yes so it can be campy it can be absolutely disturbing Uh, it is definitely for adults uh even though it does have these lighter moments but i think as as a whole it hangs together right you don't sit down and listen to it and just feel like this is this is too wild it all feels narratively consistent You'd think it would give you tonal whiplash, but it doesn't. It seems to know when to both break the comedy with a dark moment and break the darkness with a comedic moment. And it can be both give you goosebumps and have moments that are absolutely laugh out loud hilarious. And I think the the cast really helps with that. We have across both seasons, really, really strong performances as a whole. Yes. And reading this after listening to the podcast helps because you can absolutely hear the writing in the voice of those characters because it's the same guy writing all of it. You hear Moynihan's Penguin. You hear, as you point out, writes Batman. You hear Leguizamo's Riddler. Although he's a little more subdued in this story than he is. Although, again, it is pretty funny. I agree with Miss Tuesday that hiding puppies, ice creams, and guns somewhere in Arkham for the less dangerous offenders to find is actually kind of funny. This is going to be another one that's 
tricky to rank as in, I mean, it's an anthology really. And anthologies are always tricky to rank because you have to find somewhere that's in between the heights and the depths of the anthology. Fortunately, there the, the depths here aren't that much lower than the heights. Yeah, the, the mean is pretty strong here. You just take away King Simazar and it's it's really a good read. Yeah. I think the King Scimitar thing has some fun ideas. The idea that Gotham has reached a point where criminals need the gimmick. That when he goes to rob the bank and the guy's like, yeah, sure, take the money. This is going to be a great story to tell. That Who are you, man-man? Going out to your man-mobile? You know, using your guy bullets? And that was an idea we also see in season two. You know, uh, when Harley is trying to start her career of crime. Like, what's your gimmick? I know this is a generally unpopular opinion, but Fred Armisen has never been my favorite SNL cast member. He can be funny, but often his stuff leaves me kind of cold. And uh, this is this is the consensus opinion at this show. Fred Armisen is not great. It's good to be in a place where I feel feel accepted for my sometimes unpopular opinion. He has no range. It's just, it's either 100% or nothing. And I think that's part of what makes him off-putting. And King Scimitar is 100% like, look at me, I am King Scimitar. I have a weird accent. He's Vlatovin, which is a DC Universe, weird Eastern European country that is ruled over by Count Vertigo, a green arrow nemesis. That's one of those fun little DC Easter eggs, but matters to nobody but nerds like me. So, you know, if that is... the the, the lows and Batman is the highs. The mean here is pretty strong. Yeah. Well, that means it's time for Batman Audio Adventure Special on the big board. I'm trying to decide if this falls into Trifle Town or a little above Trifle. I think Parmy says it's a trifle because it doesn't have a ton of import for the, the canon but it's a well-produced comic. And it is very good at what it is, which is presumptively a lead-in, but probably better read as a follow-up to audio adventures. All right, well, let's start here. I'm going to throw one out to you, and just as, as a spot, to, a, a point of discussion. Okay. 149, Captive Audience. The Alfred story from Gotham Adventures from a couple weeks back uh it's better than that yeah more enjoyable uh it also helps that this is a you know one-shot giant and about 80 pages got a lot of things to to get into absolutely does so how well let's from earlier today 89 that's tough it it's really tough because 89 has more depth but overall this is a better end product this does not have the pacing problems this does not have the tangent or the forgotten plot lines problem that 89 does i think it goes above but maybe not too far above all right uh 136 gates of gotham i have a hard time going too much farther even below injustice at 139 because these things have more substance. Yeah. Uh, because it is it is a bit trifling. If this was 
an adaptation of audio adventures. And we get to that final episode where it's like, whoa. Then it's a different conversation. Then that would go, I don't know, much higher, but it would definitely go higher. None of the story here quite gets to that depth, but it also doesn't try to get to that either. Right. It does what it's trying to do very, very well. So that puts us in between 139 and 142. That is a really narrow margin. There's stories we've already talked about tonight. Ghosts, The Legend of the Dark Knight, Halloween Special 2, and Batgirl Day 1, the first Harley in comics story. I think it might fit right in between those. The new 141 then? New 141. Let's do it. It'll be interesting since we still don't have the conclusion of the miniseries that's, I believe, due this month to read that and see where it falls in comparison to this. That's another one of those things that I think is going to read better in trade because my brain has a hard time, obviously, keeping track of many things, especially as I'm trying to keep track of these issues and remember what's going on in the series, both before and after where this miniseries falls in. So yeah, I think it will definitely read better having listened to both seasons. It's also had some delays. It should have wrapped cover date May, and we're now in cover date August this month. So it's running a couple months late. That might That will probably help it. As that is always the problem when you have weird and inconsistent delays, too. A book that's bi-monthly and predictably bi-monthly is one thing. A book where you get three issues monthly, then a two-month gap, then one issue, then a month gap, then the next two a month apart, and then weird gaps makes for a really unsatisfactory reading experience. Ah, that it does. But we've had a generally fairly good reading experience tonight. And so let's wrap it there. Next week, we're going to be reading the oft-discussed Officer Down crossover. Finally. And two other stories about the GCPD. So, hey, more Gotham Central. Yay, all right. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote, June, conduit of outdated joke names. June, come on. Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Hmm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubucks, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sargioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat books, 
From my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>